You know, this book that you uh, have with you, in it, there are some real bold statements, very bold statements. Uh, for instance, look at this statement in 2 Timothy 3.16. And you can't get any bolder than this, 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. A very bold statement. No wiggle room allowed. All Scripture doesn't say 50%, 90%. Well, almost all Scripture. No, it just boldly proclaims all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Cut, dry, black and white, simple. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Okay, let's look at a second totally bold scripture, John seventeen seventeen. John seventeen seventeen. Where Christ in that prayer to the Father, his last evening upon earth as a flesh and blood living human being, says John seventeen seventeen, sanctify or set them apart through your truth. And look at this bold statement, your word is truth, period. It's not 80% truth and 20% lies, 90% truth and 10% lies, hmm. 99% truth and 1% lies. No, your word is truth. So you have all scriptures given by inspiration of God. And then you have this, your word is truth. Very bold statements. And then the third one, John 10, 35. John 10 and verse 35. It says, if he called them gods unto whom the word of God came and, and here's the boldness part in particular that I want to draw attention to, the scripture cannot be broken. It can't be broken. It's true. It's accurate. There's nothing false about it. It cannot be broken. So you look at these bold statements and you could draw this conclusion that the Bible is accurate in every sense. It's accurate historically because there's historical notations. You might say prehistorically, even in regards to things that happened before mankind. What we might say prehistory. <coughs> History being a word that means the story of man. Archaeologically, because there are archaeological facts in the Bible. Geographically, astronomically. Physiologically, because there are physiological facts in the Bible. Psychologically, scientifically, and prophetically. Accurate in all of those. And of course, obviously, if inspired, then it has to have, it has to have an inspirer. If it was inspired, then there's an inspirer. If it's authentic and accurate and inspired, then you have proved both God and the Bible. They go hand in glove in that sense. They go together. They're not separated. Because in the proof of one is the proof of the other. You have proved both God and the Bible. 
If you notice that the very first four words of the Bible, the very first four words of the Bible, certainly in the <coughs> King James Version, say, in the beginning, God. Those are the first four words. In the beginning, God. You know, the most important and basic issue, we are living, breathing, eating, drinking, flesh and blood, thinking human beings, aren't we? We are a race of life broken into various ethnicities, races, and all of that. But the human race, mankind, and we have to feed ourselves and clothe ourselves. There's all kinds of things we have to do. But we had a beginning. And we're here for a reason. At least that's what most people think, or, you know, and some spend a lifetime searching for the reason and can't figure it out. But the most important and basic issue, fundamentally important and basic issue that there is for the human being is God's existence. God's existence. Notice with me Hebrews 11 and verse 6. Hebrews 11 and verse 6 in the faith chapter. It says, but without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he that comes to God must believe that he is, that he exists, that he's there. You know, do you go to pray and put your heart into your prayer and be sincere in your prayer if you're wondering, does God exist? Of course, you couldn't and wouldn't. Must believe that he is, that he exists. And that is reward of them that diligently seek him. But most basic of all, that he is God's existence. There was a young man that came to me years ago in Montgomery, Alabama. And he said, Mr. Beam, he said, I, I, I want to be baptized. Now, I knew him. I had worked with him some. He wasn't a total stranger to me, and I knew he had a basic issue, and he voiced it himself. He said, I want to be baptized. I, I would like for you to baptize me, but uh, um, I, I, I'm not sure God exists. <laughs> okay, let's just say Charlie. Okay, Charlie, <laughs> we've got to get a few fundamentals worked out here before we can proceed down the road of baptism and all. <laughs> oh, interesting, interesting, and, and kind of funny on one level and certainly not funny on another. The existence of God and that the Bible is his word. Nothing more basic and fundamental than that. So, what I'm going to talk about today is proof of God and the Bible. Proof of God and the Bible. This is part one. God willing, I'll follow up with part two in two weeks. <coughs> proof of God and the Bible. Part one. 
We know that as we read in Genesis 6 and 7 and 8, we read of a worldwide flood that buried all the land underwater. <clears throat> we refer to it as Noah's flood or the Noatian flood because it was at his time, but it was God's flood, obviously. It wasn't Noah's flood. Noah didn't produce it. He warned of it, told of it. It was an instrument in God's hands for warning and preaching. But it was God's flood, and we call it the Noatian flood, which is okay in Noah's flood because it, it notates that flood and dates it chronologically. <coughs> anyway, it speaks of a worldwide flood where all land was under water. Now, actually, there were two floods where the land was under water. But we're just going to deal for the moment with Noah's flood, the Noatian flood. When I lived in Montgomery, Alabama in the mid-70s, south of Montgomery, there was a county, uh, still is, <laughs> Lowndes County, Lowndes County, Alabama. And if somebody had been down at Lowndes County and got mud all over their tires and pulled into a gas station, you, you could look at, at, in Montgomery, you could look at the tires and say, oh, he's been down to Lowndes County because it had a certain type of antediluvian soil. It was high country, <coughs> and I would go down there and deer hunt. Now, down there in those hills, up in the high country down there, top of those hills, there was a whole road system, old road system, where a whole system of communities, houses, people had lived at one time. And some of the old houses were still left, a few of them were. <coughs> but in that area... You could walk along, and you're, you were walking on soil that had been underwater. And this is one of the highest parts of Alabama down there. You were walking on soil that had been underwater at one time. And you could be walking along. That is a very solid fossilized shale that came from Lowndes County. You can see the curl and the outline. And it feels about like a chunk of lead, totally fossilized. These would be lying on top of the ground in various locations. And so I brought a couple back with me just as souvenirs. But what I was seeing up on that high ground and what I picked up and kept, two of them, as souvenirs were proofs. Proofs that I could see and touch, feel and all of that land being underwater at one time. Some people say you have to take God's existence only as an issue of faith. No, you don't. No, you don't. Because you have to take the Bible being inspired of God just on faith alone. No, you don't. Because God himself has given us many proofs of his own existence, given us many proofs, tangible proofs of his existence, and of the Bible's inspiration. <clears throat> Have you ever looked at uh, strata where a road, highway has been cut through a mountain? White Oak Mountain just north of uh, Chattanooga, between Chattanooga and Cleveland. Uh, if you've ever traveled Interstate 75 up White Oak Mountain and through there, there's an area where the strata is, is, is not level. It's off at an angle. A tremendous angle. But strata, you have layers. 
And those layers were laid down by water action and then later made into rock through the pressures that were put upon them. But also you have places where the strata has just been broken and shifted in various places, again, because of, of pressures and all. The Grand Canyon. Let me tell you a little secret. The Grand Canyon was not carved out by the Colorado River alone. <laughs> if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon and you have seen it, you know that little tiny river did not carve all of that out. <clears throat> the Noatian Flood and possibly the previous flood before that, when all the waters were drained off of the land, they washed it out. They drained it. They, they cut into that and like cataracts and just cut it. If you've ever flown, most of us in your probably at least many of us have flown, and when you're 15, 20, 30,000 feet up in the air, and you're flying especially across the western United States in particular, and you look down, there are places where you can see what's called floodplains, where you can see where there was water action, uh, and those high areas that as they drained off, they cut grooves and all in it. Go with me to uh, Genesis 1. <coughs> In verse 2. Now, here is before the Noatian flood. Here's before Adam and Eve. Here's before mankind. Here chronologically is before the earth as we know it today with its vegetation and animals and all. Verse 2, and the earth was without form and void, and notice, darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. God poured His Spirit out to do a certain work of renewal, and notice, it moves upon the face of what? Not the face of the land, the face of the waters. The land, the earth, at that point in time was completely submerged in water. Period. Notice verse 9. In verse 9, <clears throat> And God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together <clears throat> unto one place, and let the dry land appear. He raised the dry land up out of the water. He gathered the waters. He receded them from the land, raised the land up. And of course, again, you're going to have water rushing off of totally soaked land. And you're going to get some measure of erosion and all at that time. Let's go back to verse 2. Now, verse 1 says, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. And verse 2 says, And the earth was without form and void. If you check out the Hebrew words translated into the English, you will find that the statement is, And the earth became was not in its original condition as such, but it became 
Bohu and Tohu. It became chaos and confusion. It became that. Now, without form and void. Bohu, Tohu, without form, void, chaos, confusion. The earth came to be that way. Now, we're not the only ones who recognize that there is a chronological gap between verses 1 and 2. It doesn't tell you how much of a gap there is, but there is a gap between a chronological or time gap between verses 1 and 2. And it's actually called, in, in the theological circles, where they recognize that there's a gap there, they call it the uh, they call it the gap theory, G-A-P gap, the gap theory. Now, I'm coming back here, but Isaiah 45 verse 18, Isaiah 45 and verse 18. For thus says the Lord that created the heavens. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Thus says the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it. Now notice this statement. He has established it. He created it not in vain. And the word vain there is tohu. The same word that's used in Genesis 1 and verse 2. He created it not in Tohu. And that word can mean to lie waste. It can mean a desolation. It can mean without form. It can mean a worthless thing. It it can mean confusion. So it is saying, he is saying through Isaiah, he has established it. He created it not in confusion. He created it not as a desolation. He created it not lying waste. He formed it to be inhabited. So something happened. Something happened between verses 1 and 2 that put the earth in the state that it came to be in that was not the way it was when God originally created it. On this planet, there are tremendous deposits of oil, coal, I mean tremendous deposits. And we know that oil and coal and all, that that is animal life and plant life that was generated under extreme pressures due to some extreme event. Now, growing up, during part of my growing up, we had a coal-burning stove. And one of my chores was, when I got in from school, was to make sure that the coal bin was full and uh, I'd go out to the coal pile and, you know, if some pieces were too big, I'd bust them up. But it's interesting how many times I found fossils in the coal, you know, imprints of leaves and other things that had been compressed and sometimes little critter-looking things. But... Think, you think about when you look at the magnitude of the coal deposits and the oil, etc., that had to be put there by extreme pressures, you think about how much vegetation. See, the, the world that existed when the earth was first created 
didn't have trees the size we have now. Didn't have animals the size we have now. It was a, a totally different world than what it is now. And so much of that just got flipped and compressed and formed cold. Take diamonds. Diamonds are only formed under extreme pressures. Well, again, there was a whole world back at that time. Um, you and I know, and some others know too, but many people don't realize that what happened between verses 1 and 2 is very simply stated. Satan's rebellion. It was his rebellion that put the earth in the state it came to be in. And it was his rebellion that created the coal and the oil and all of that as a result of extreme pressures and land being flipped and all of that. His rebellion. And I don't think that we comprehend or can fully comprehend the energies that were unleashed at that time, energies beyond our imagination were unleashed in what's called the war in heaven. Go with me to Revelation 12 and verse 7. I have said over and over through the years that this is a historical statement as well as a prophecy, simply because it is. Revelation 12 and verse 7 is a historical statement, and it's also a prophecy. And you can have it as history and as prophecy when it happens twice. Once in the past and once more in the future that's ahead of us. And there was war in heaven. Now there's three heavens. The atmosphere around this earth is the first heaven that, that contains the air we breathe, the oxygen. Uh, the terrestrial heavens <coughs> of the stars and the planets and all of that. And then, of course, the third heaven where God's throne is. There was war in heaven. There was war throughout this universe. Michael, appointed by God, obviously, to do so, and his angels, the loyal angels of God, holy angels, fought against the dragon. And the dragon fought and his angels War in heaven. Uh, it happened long ago. And that's what happened between verses 1 and 2 of Genesis 1. And yet, evidently, Satan is going to try the same thing. Don't say, well, he knows he can't win, so he won't. He does what he wants to do or out of his hatred whether he thinks he can win or not. And maybe he's deluded in thinking, well, I failed the first time, but I'll win the second time. Who knows? Don't try to climb into his mind too far. <laughs> it's a mess. But let's connect with that Isaiah 14, verses 13 and 14. In fact, we'll start with verse 12. <clears throat> Isaiah 14 and verse 12. How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? You who had a place in heaven. You who were covering cherub. How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations? And here in, in chapter 14, <clears throat> For you said in your heart, verse 13, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. 
I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like, or better rendered, I will be the Most High. He charged off to heaven with his angels, loyal to him, disloyal to God, to try to take God's throne. There was war. There were energies unleashed. I have been out many a night traveling sometimes a lonely highway with a very black sky above me, just sprinkled with stars. And, of course, see a shooting star, a falling star, sometimes a pretty good-sized one, with a green or yellow or greenish-yellow tail of flame and fire behind it, until it, you know, as it burns out in the atmosphere. And we talk about seeing showers of falling stars. Of course, they're not stars. They are pieces of planets. They're pieces of debris. And they're pretty only because the way they light up, kind of like fireworks. But when you look at what we call falling stars, what are you actually seeing? You're seeing war debris. You're seeing, yeah, space junk. What is space junk? See, when God created the universe, that wasn't there. There weren't. The moon wasn't pockmarked. Those pockmarks, those craters, are from space junk Meteorites and all slammed in. That space junk was part of a planet or planets at one time. As you look out into the skies, as the astronomers study the heavens, the terrestrial heavens, sometimes they will spot a dust cloud. All a dust cloud is is a shattered planet, where a planet once was and it was pulverized into dust. These, all of that is war debris. It is proof and evidence of the war that took place in the universe at one time when Satan rebelled. There are desolate planets that are just desolate, like Mars, for instance. And nobody knows for sure what black holes are, not really. Kind of know what they do, but nobody really knows for sure. And I read something years ago in studying astronomy, not astrology. <laughs> the difference. Astronomy. I read something that is not common knowledge, and you don't read it in just any books about it, and, not every, and probably today a lot of astronomers may or may not be that aware of it or pay attention. But I remember reading that some of the astronomers notated how that as they searched the heavens with the telescopes, that in terms of the issue of the density of stars and planets that they see in the universe, that as they look through the northern skies, as they look through the northern skies, they uh, don't see quite the same amount of density of, of stars and planets that they would expect based on the density 
of the rest of the universe. And they just write it off as, well, I guess that's just not as quite as developed a part of the universe. But they, they notice that there at least is enough difference that sometimes they refer to it as a corridor. What they're looking at is the battle trail. Satan charged off to take God's throne. Remember what it says here in Isaiah 14? I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. He charged off for God's throne. The battle route, the route along which the battle took place between Satan and his demons and Michael and his angels was primarily through the northern skies. And so you'd expect it to be thinned out a little bit there because, again, um, and there's plenty of stars and stuff there. I'm not saying, they're not saying that it's empty. But they're just noticing that the density isn't quite the same. Anyhow, uh, <coughs> powers unleashed that if you know where to go in the Bible, it talks about even the heavens not being clean. Now, there's proofs. There's plenty of proofs. But let's look, at, let's look uh, along that line. Let's look at Psalm 75, verses 6 and 7. Psalm 75. See, the God who is God, who had to deal with all of this, he has allowed more than enough dots to be put on paper. He doesn't, all, he doesn't put them all in the same spot, but you can start finding those dots and putting them on paper and certain pictures do emerge. Notice... Uh, here in Psalm 75, verses 6 and 7. Now, talking about directions. For promotion comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. Now, what direction is left out? If you've got four directions, and you eliminate the east, you eliminate the west, and you eliminate the south, you're only left with one direction. That's north. But God is the judge. He puts down one and sets up another. It's talking about promotion coming from God. And it says it doesn't come from the east, it doesn't come from the west, it doesn't come from the south. Guess where it comes from? The north. And coming from God, it comes from the north. Again, the sides of the north. I won't go into archaeology. <coughs> But archaeology uses the Bible's directions to locate cities of ancient times and because they have learned to depend on the accuracy of it. How about astronomically and geographically accurate? Job 26, verse 7. Job 26. See, if somebody ever says to me, uh, Mr. Reem, you, have, you, have, uh, you, you believe in God, right? I sure do. Uh, I don't just believe in him. I'm convicted of him. Uh, well, you have strong faith. You, you, you've come to the point where you believe in God on faith. Well, faith is involved, but no, I, I believe in God, first of all, because of the plain evidence that God has given me that he's there and that his Bible is his word. Chapter 26, verse 7. <clears throat> he stretched out the north over the empty place and hangs the earth up on nothing. Hangs the earth upon nothing. The earth is not sitting on Atlas's shoulders, as some taught at one time. The earth does not 
sitting on the back of some gigantic turtle that's bigger than the earth or four elephants or whatever. There's all kinds of, in false religion, all kinds of theories and ideas. The earth is hung on nothing. There's, I mean, we've circled the earth. It's not sitting on something. It's not hanging by a cord. It's a ball out here that spins, <coughs> gives us our day, and moves around the sun, giving us our year, with a tilt that gives us our seasons, that all works together. But it hangs on nothing. And in Isaiah 40, verse 22, Isaiah 40, Isaiah 40, and verse 42 says, It is He, you know, verse 18 says, To whom then will you liken God? There's nobody like God. Verse 22, It is He that sits upon the circle of the earth. You ever look at the moon? Sure you do. It's round, isn't it? Ever look at the sun with some kind of shades? It's round, isn't it? Mars is round. Neptune is round. Saturn is round. Venus is round. The earth is round. It is he that sits upon the circle of the earth. The circle of the earth. Uh, if there is anyone in here, listen carefully, who believes that the earth is flat and is part of the flat earth society, please do yourself a favor and me a favor. Don't tell me you believe that. <laughs> because I respect all of you. <laughs> and I do not want to lose respect for anyone because they have taken their intelligence and used it to make an idiot of themselves. Sadly, I have known people who have bought into that flat earth society. And I guess if you go over far enough, you fall off the earth. Oh, no, no, you wouldn't fall off. There's a wall of ice around the edge. Wow. But the sun doesn't melt it. It is unbelievable. But anyway, see, Luke 17:34. Let's, let's just look there for a moment. One of the most easily provable things in our day and age with technology is that the earth is round. In fact, many of the sailors anciently knew that the earth wasn't flat because on the high seas, they didn't see a ship miles and miles and miles and miles away come into view being real, real blurry and then begin to sharpen up more and more as they got closer. No. They saw the tip of the top mast, the main mast. They saw the tip of it appear first and it was like the ship rose out of the ocean. And it did because the curvature of the earth. But notice Luke 17. And think about what this is illustrating <clears throat> it's as far as the earth. 
Verse 34. Christ said, I tell you, in that night, in that night, night, dark, dark, night, there shall be two in one bed. The one shall be taken and the other shall be left. Night, night. Verse 35. Two women <coughs> shall be grinding together. The one shall be taken and the other left. And that's day, day. You grind, you work during the daytime. Verse 36. Two men shall be in the field. That's daytime. That's light. The one shall be taken and the other left. Now, regardless as to what he's talking about there as far as the event, I want to point out you've got night and nighttime activity, and you've got daytime and daytime activity both going on at the same instant of this event. Friday night, when we had a video chat with Lauren in Australia. All I have to do is say, Lauren, it is dark here. Is it dark there? No, Dad, it's daylight here. Well, Lauren, the day has finished here, and it's dark, and it's night, and we're pushing towards going to bed here soon. Well, Dad, it's gotten daylight here, and we've had our morning coffee, and we're getting around and getting ready to go to services in just a little bit. Well, Lauren, how can that be with this flat earth? How can that be? This is the same instant of time we're talking, and it's daylight there, and it's dark here. Dad, because the earth is round. <laughs> Please ask these one seven. Please ask these one. <coughs> And it's interesting too, and, and some of these <coughs> some of these things might be figured out by some folks just by looking at certain physical facts. Solomon said in chapter one, verse seven, all the rivers run to the sea. If the sea is not full, to the place whence those rivers come, they return again. He knew that there were cycles. <clears throat> and you talk about water. Let's look at something that's very interesting in Job 38 in verse 16. Now, Job 38 is where God himself begins to talk directly with Job. He begins to address Job directly. <clears throat> I'll pick it up in, in uh, verse 4. Job 38 and verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And when the earth was originally created? He says, verse 7, and I'll read 4 and then jump to 7. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? When the morning stars, verse 7, when the morning stars sang together. Lucifer was a morning star, a day star, morning star, Lucifer, light bringer. There had been no angelic rebellion. Lucifer had not turned against God. All the angels were still together. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God, referencing the angels, shouted for joy. Because the earth wasn't bohu and tohu. It was beautiful. It was gorgeous. It was a jewel. And they shouted 
for joy when the earth was created. Just wanted to touch back upon that. Now, verse 16. Job, have you entered into the springs of the sea or have you walked in search of the depth? Have you entered into the springs of the sea? Well, hmm, that's nice. That's nice. That's nice Jewish poetry to speak of the sea as having springs in it. The Mariana Trench in the Pacific is deeper. The water is deeper than Mount Everest is high. It's, it's unbelievable, the depths of the ocean. And back in Job's time, how could anyone, any human being, have known there were springs in the sea? No way to know it. No technology to even ascertain that that's true. Let me read you just this little brief uh, note. The first hydrothermal vent, as they call it, spring, was discovered in 1977. They are known to exist in the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans. Most are found at an average depth of about 7,000 feet, in areas of seafloor spreading along the mid-ocean ridge system. And that's another thing. Right in the midst of the Atlantic and the, and the Pacific, um, but I know specifically with the Atlantic, there is a range of underwater mountains, peaks. <clears throat> uh, mid-ocean ridge system, the underwater mountain chain that snakes its way around the globe. The first hydrothermal vent was discovered in 1977. So, guess what? There are springs of the sea that boil up fresh water into the sea. Let's go back to Genesis 1. Let's notice something here that I didn't stop and emphasize when we were there before. In Genesis 1, in verse 9, And God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place. The body of water was one contiguous big body of water. Let the waters be gathered into one place and let the dry <coughs> land appear, singular. The dry land, singular, appear. In course, verse 10 and God called the dry land earth. And the gathering together of the waters called he seas. And God saw that it was good. Now, let's go to Genesis 10 and verse 25. 
You're post-flood. Sons of Noah, they're having children. Earth is being repopulated. You come down to uh, verse 25, and one of the descendants, whose name was Eber, verse 25, and unto Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Division. In the English you have Peleg. It means division. So here this son's name <laughs> means division. Why? Well, it tells you right there. For in his days was the earth divided. And it's not talking about dividing the races per se, or mankind per se. For in his days was the earth divided. <clears throat> Have you ever looked at a picture of the ocean floor? Have you ever looked at a, a picture of that mountain ridge that's underwater? Now, some of you can't see this from where you are, obviously, but you got the North American and South American continents, and you got Africa, and you got the Oast, the Atlantic that lies between, and right through the middle, following, just snaking right through, following the, the curvature of Africa and South America and North America, you've got this mountain range. And if anybody wants to see it, I'll, I'll just leave it out on the table back there. But you've got this mountain range. What happens when you bring that mountain range up into being, you break the crust and create mountains right where they did, you break what's above it apart. Um, some of us are familiar with the term Pangea. It has to do with when all the land masses were one big landmass. And at some point in time, they were broken apart. The landmass was broken apart into the continents. And if you look at this picture, you can see how that North America, South America, Africa, that's the part that is showing in this graph, it fits together like pieces of a puzzle. And it doesn't take any imagination to see how it was together at one time. And even satellite uh, pictures verify that, and you've heard the term continental drift, that the continents are still drifting apart. Of course, just so, so slight you wouldn't know it, except that they can measure it with satellite pictures. Anyway, very interesting. Uh, the miscellaneous are accurate. Genesis 3. Okay, Eve, what have you done? Well, first of all, Adam, what have you done? Well, it was Eve. You know, it's her fault. Well, Eve, what have you done? Well, it's the snake's fault. Okay, snake, what have you done? And now here's the punishment to you, snake. And then he goes back up the line, of course, to, uh, to uh, Eve and to Adam. But in dealing with the snake here, uh, it was a serpent that appeared to Eve. And in the Garden of Wonders, I guess she wasn't surprised that a serpent, a snake, could talk to her. Whatever. 
But Satan used the snake as an instrument. It was Satan, of course, using the snake as an instrument. Here is a lesson. Any thing or one who is used of Satan as an instrument, that's all, there's automatically a curse to it. It's never a blessing to be used of Satan. There's, it's, there's always a curse attached to being used by Satan. Even this, this animal, this critter, this snake, there was, there was a curse attached to it, it having been the instrument of Satan, Satan using it. Now, I'm, getting, I'm laying that down first <coughs> because notice what God says in verse 14. In verse 14, chapter 3, <coughs> And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Now notice, notice this. Upon your belly shall you go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. I grew up chasing snakes and being chased by snakes and watching out for snakes. Every snake I ever knew already had its nose in the ground. It's crawling on its belly. Have you ever seen a snake that wasn't crawling on its belly? No. They always crawl on their belly. They got their nose in the dust. Can you imagine the snake saying, oh, big deal, you know, I've already got my nose down here in the dust and I'm already crawling on my belly. So, wow, I can take a lot of this, a lot more of this kind of punishment because that's nothing new. See, the point is, the snake at that time did not crawl. It walked. It had legs. The original snake had legs. See, long ago, <coughs> scientists <coughs> notated that snakes have what they call vestigial legs. In other words, there are spots on their body where legs once were, but are no longer there. And they write it off to evolution. Now that proves evolution's not right, because if a snake was walking, he's not going to give up his legs to get his nose down in the dust, is he? But that's how they write it off. But they notate that snakes at one time had legs, but in the evolutionary process, they, for whatever reason, gave them up or lost them. No, they walked. God redesigned their DNA, and took the legs away. And lo and behold, quote, scientific evidences bear that out. Interesting. And you think about things in the Bible like Jonah 1.17, about being swallowed by the people say the whale. doesn't say a whale, does it? A great fish was prepared. Whether God created a special fish or took a big fish and prepared it specially, whatever, a great fish was prepared to swallow Jonah. And, of course, people say, well, you couldn't live in a fish. Well, so what if you couldn't? What if you just died? God can't resurrect you? Say, Jonah, I'm not through with you. Uh or kept him alive the whole time that he was in there. But here's what's interesting, and people will poo-poo 
that account that, well, he was swallowed by a whale or whatever it was, and he survived it to be able to go on and preach to Nineveh. That couldn't happen, so we know that that's just one of the fairy tales of the Bible. It's interesting, uh, long ago, I came across an account of a whaler, a ship, a whaler, like Moby Dick, that kind of thing, Captain Ahab, out there whaling after whales. And in the, the process of hunting these whales, I don't remember every detail, but I do remember that in some of the action, they lost a man overboard. And he didn't resurface. They couldn't save him. And a day, two later, they managed to harpoon a whale and with their tackle and all gear, uh, get it up to the ship and start cutting it up to process it. And when they cut down to where they got to the stomach lining, they could see something behind the lining and they cut through and it was that guy. And he was totally white from the acids. It had bleached his skin, but he was still alive. He was bleached. Of course, you know, in the enough air getting into the stomach area, even the way the whales are, it was stale, but there'd been just enough that he had stayed alive. Of course, he wouldn't have been alive much longer and bleached totally white, but they revived him. I don't know what happened to him at a later time, but uh, there is, is that account. And again, with God, it does say he had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. So... And I'll wrap this up for today because I said this is, this is part one. Romans 1, when you read Romans 1, you read of anti-God. Don't want God in our knowledge. Don't want God in our ways. We know better. We do it our way. I will turn over there and maybe read one or two verses. Romans 1, as I close this. Verse 27. And likewise, verse 27, and likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another. Men with men working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. Romans 1 is one of the proofs of God because it speaks of God and the creation and no excuse for not knowing there is a God and that there's a natural design that He designed and you break it and it breaks you. And all of the AIDS and the herpes and the STDs and all of the stuff that come as a result of broken laws which once again gives proof to the validity of abstinence, to chastity, chastity, to monogamy, and to God's ways. Again, no matter what area you go into and you look at, you find, you find the inspiration of the Bible and the proof of it being the Word of God and the proof of God. And God willing, I'll continue in two weeks.